Literally everyone, everyone in the country, be it an importer, a university student, if you're an employee at the local grocery store, you are probably using the black market. Taymour Azhari covers Lebanon for Al Jazeera.com. And the last year has been eventful. Nine months ago, protesters were calling for a revolution. Today, the economy is in free fall, and Taymour is tracing the downward path to the black market. The people Taymour's met are exchanging cash. The local currency is crashing, and dollars are a hot commodity. It's a lot like a drug deal. They will drive up to the curb, you'll get in the car, and they'll pull out an envelope with however much money it is, and and you'll exchange the money, and and they drop you off. And, And that's how a large, large part of the population today is exchanging their money. And is this legal? It's not. Lebanon is a tiny country that goes big on catchphrases. Ski in the morning, swim in the afternoon, and at midnight, to the club. But now it's facing a grimmer set of cliches. A country in economic crisis. Power cuts getting longer and longer. Lines at ATMs and stacks of banknotes that aren't worth much. Lebanon's currency has lost 80% of its value this year. Life now has become very difficult. It's expensive. There's despair and the state can't find any solutions. It can't lower any prices or do anything. It is just watching people suffering. We had a 15-year war and we didn't witness what we're seeing today. Yes, there was a war, but you could find everything. The economic situation wasn't like it is now. The Lebanese are no strangers to handling crisis. But with every bit of the old normal that's stripped away, it gets clearer that this crisis could be the biggest since the Civil War. The Lebanon that many of us know is going dark. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I want to start by asking you about what happens when you go to an ATM in Lebanon these days and try to withdraw. Well, I mean, it's very difficult. There's limits. So there's limits on how much money you can get, even in the local currency. Basically, you're limited to uh, a certain amount that for most people is, I'd, I'd say, about a, you know less than $1,000 worth a month. Several financial crises have hit the country at once. A devaluation of the currency, a banking sector near collapse, and a bankrupt government. Defying a lockdown and a curfew, protesters attack a bank in the capital, Beirut. At bank branches across Lebanon, people line up to try to withdraw as much of their savings as they can. Informal restrictions have been in place for months and access to dollars stopped, further fueling public anger. Lebanon is a country where you used to be able to pay with dollars just as easily as you could pay with Lebanese lira. I remember going to the first time going to Beirut and in a cafe and just being so confused by that, but also really pleasantly surprised. Talk to me about what that actually looked like in practice. You could go to a shop with like $100 
if you're buying something for, say, 10 bucks, you'd expect to get $90 back, right? But in Lebanon, people were so used to using the currencies interchangeably that you could basically be given back like two $20 notes and then like a 50,000 pound Lebanese pound mm-hmm. note uh, and like a 5,000 pound note and then also like some some coins and change. And, and that's just how people lived for a very long time. Uh, and since last fall, basically, it's just completely slipped against the dollar. And so now instead of $100 being worth 150,000 Lebanese pounds, it's worth around 800,000 Lebanese pounds, which basically means that people's livelihoods have just sort of evaporated. And that brings us back to those illegal cash exchanges. They've always existed in Lebanon, but authorities cracked down on them as the economy crumbled. And people are desperate for the dollar's stability. There are so many people doing it that it's just one of those things that flies a bit under the radar. And so people are arrested for this. But what most people I've spoken to hope is that they won't go after the person, you know, who's like a student exchanging $300 to pay rent. Is this in an area where you feel like no one will notice or is this on a busy street? Does it matter? It's on a busy street and, and in the middle of Beirut's Hamra neighborhood, which is sort of a bustling neighborhood, or at least was a bustling neighborhood until the, the crisis. Nowadays, it's darkened. There's a lot of closed storefronts. But no, it's, it's a bustling neighborhood and, and people just sort of in broad daylight, you know, people just counting cash on the street. And there really is this expectancy that, that sort of, you know, security forces will will have a bit of mercy on people who are struggling so much to live. So you mentioned Hamra, which is this iconic neighborhood in Beirut full of cafes and and shops and people, and a lot of it has gone dark. Yeah. Tell me about what that has to do with this story. A couple weeks back, or even a month back, we started noticing that streetlights started going out around the capital. And, you know, one or two, you kind of just brush it off because in Lebanon, we're used to a lot of dysfunction. But it started to get really bad where, where you know, super busy intersections, just the traffic lights were completely off uh, and people were, were left to sort of navigate the streets on their own. Just an estimate on your way home today to, to come do this interview. How many traffic lights were out on the road that you passed? There were none on. Yeah. So when I did the story, I was told that there was that 75 percent of the traffic lights were not working. Other people had figures around 60 percent, but I did not see any working traffic lights on the way home. And, you know, the traffic lights actually were one of the few actual sources of light in the streets at night because the power cuts are so severe. And so now just the the, you know, driving through a traffic light at night, an intersection is extremely dangerous. There are no lights of any kind, no traffic lights and no street lights. And we're approaching now a main intersection uh, between areas of the capital. This is the entrance to the Hamra Street. And as you see, there is just absolutely no light, no traffic lights uh, and and no regular street lights. That is the, the situation in Beirut today. Beirut's loss of light has some symbolism to it. This is not the first time the city has gone so dark for so long. What you have to know about traffic lights in Lebanon is they're a fairly recent development. The country had a a brutal, destructive civil war from 1975 to 1990. 
And after that civil war, it took a couple years for streetlights to, to come back. Taimur talked to an urban studies professor, Mona Fawaz, who remembered those early days at the end of the civil war. People were used to just zooming through traffic lights. And so she told me that when she would stop at a red light, you know, just this crescendo of horns would just come up from behind her and people would be honking. <laughs> and she would have to like sort of like park her car like sideways so that people didn't slip past. Oh, wow. And she told me that there was an element of feeling like we were part of a movement to improve the city. Though it was something so basic, you know, the humble traffic lights. But it, it symbolizes so much of what the state is. You'd go out on the streets and, and yes, there was no electricity. Yes, there was political turmoil. But at least, you know, you sort of stopped it red and drove it green. And now they're falling apart. And, and many people who lived through that period, who I spoke to, sort of talk about how it is the symbol of basically the dream that, that people had at the end of the Civil War kind of falling apart. So what is it like navigating the streets right now? Do you have Mona Fawazes out there who are trying to make sure people still kind of stop and obey no. the idea of traffic laws? No, it's sort of a free-for-all. And, and this is one of the really sort of sad things in, in general as Lebanon has descended from this period of, you know, the massive uprising it had last year where hundreds of thousands of people, over a million people were on the streets. And that was a really a, a moment of unity that's sort of been unseen in Lebanon even since independence in 1943. Where we are today with the economic crisis that has since hit, it really feels like a free-for-all, like in each to his own. And and no, there are there are no activists at the traffic light now. There are just people trying to get on with their lives. So from the traffic light issue to the lack of electricity and sporadic electricity, a lot of this has to do with not having the money. And part of that is based on your reporting, because of corruption, mm. a big piece of this puzzle. Talk to me about banks. Do banks have the money to let customers withdraw? What is happening? Yeah, so not really. And this kind of gets into what's been called the Lebanese Ponzi scheme. You may have heard the name, but do you know how to spot a Ponzi scheme? A Ponzi is a fraudulent investment scheme that promises guaranteed returns to its investors from their own money rather than profits earned from a legitimate business venture. Ponzi schemes are perfect for con artists because they can easily be set up. All they need is to look official. Lebanon didn't really have an economy per se in a lot of ways. It didn't produce anything, but basically just imported everything it consumed. The main pillars of the economy were real estate and banking and inflows from the big Lebanese diaspora abroad. Round one, the con artist pockets the investor's money. And so what banks pretty much did is they offered up massive interest rates to people so that they would put their money in the banks. And, and rightly, I mean, expect to get that interest back. Round two, the circle of investors grows. The con artist uses some of the new money to pay earlier investors. The problem is that because the, the inflows were stopping and because the system wasn't sustainable, they had to keep offering up bigger interests to pay back the old interests, right? It's pretty much the hallmark of a Ponzi scheme where you're paying back old interest with the, the proceeds from new deposits. Those dollar deposits were then lent to the central bank, which gave them to the government. Now, the government is broke and owes the banks tens of billions of dollars, the people's money. 
And the problem with that is that when inflows stop, and when you stop having that source of money to pay everything back, it basically falls apart. The scheme collapses. The con artist takes off, and most investors lose everything. The ingrained corruption here has meant that over five billion dollars has been withdrawn anyway, and is presumed to have left the country. You know, people can go to the bank and ask for their bank balance, and on that balance statement, it will say that they have, you know, say ten thousand dollars. But in reality, that money is just not there at the bank. It's not there. That's not just the case in Lebanon. Banks move our money around all the time. But in Lebanon, the customers didn't get their money back. It might never have been there because it was just you know interest numbers on a computer screen, or it it might be gone because it was transferred abroad or lent to the state or lent to private businesses and and not paid back. But the point is that. Your money on your bank statement isn't there. It's an accounting entry. That is the essence of the Lebanese financial crisis today. It's that there's just a whole lot of money that isn't there. The government estimates the the losses in the financial sector to be sixty one billion dollars. We're not talking about small change here. We're talking about sixty one billion dollars that just aren't there. What does that mean for people? I mean, I cannot imagine going to the bank and knowing that my money should have been there but is not, and I don't have access to it. Yeah, it means that people's lives are just completely falling apart. It means that if you have a son studying abroad and you want to transfer money to them, you can't. It means that if you had your savings in Lebanon parked in a bank in Lebanon and you wanted to use them for something, I mean, there's many Lebanese who just because there are historically few economic opportunities here, they work their whole lives abroad and and they've you know put their life savings in banks here, and and they want to retire and they can't now. That money is just not there anymore, and so it means that people are pushed into increasing desperation. Taymor says there have been many signs of that desperation: a huge uptick in crime, an increase in murders, and in suicides. Just a couple of weeks ago, here on on Hamada Street, again, this sort of symbol of of what used to be golden days Beirut, this commercial hub, a, a man killed himself right on Hamada Street in front of a Dunkin' Donuts. And he wrote on a on a piece of paper "Ana Mishkefer," which translates to "I'm not a heretic" or "I'm not a sinner." And that's basically a lyric from a, a song by Lebanese musician Ziad Rahbani. And the lyric is "Ana Mishkefer, but sejuah kefer." So I'm not a sinner, but hunger is sin, or hunger makes you a sinner. <laughs> And so what people are increasingly throwing around in terms of where Lebanon is going is the Venezuela scenario. Just, you know, hyperinflation. You walk into a supermarket and shelves are empty. Something that has you know, never happened in, in Beirut, even, you know, even for most of the war. Because during the war, there was money flowing in, you know, militias being funded. That just isn't the case today. The currency has lost 80% of its value in eight months and is showing sort of no signs of abating. There is no ceiling to how low it can go. How could this be allowed to happen? Where was the state in all of this? 
So the state, uh, it's funny because in Lebanon, there's a popular phrase which people will utter to each other, which is, where is the state? And the state has been missing for a long time. Uh, and it's one of the reasons people rose up last year in this unprecedented uprising. That uprising brought down the government and a new one came to power. Timur says it was supported by the establishment, but branded as a technocratic government one that would do things differently. Since taking office in January, Prime Minister Hassan Diab's government has been working on a plan to save Lebanon's economy. After much reluctance, the government intends to seek financial assistance from the International Monetary Fund. That government, you know, made a financial plan. They, they talked big talk. They said they would fight corruption. And they suspended repayments of public debt. They started negotiations with the IMF. But everything is stalled. And the reason everything is stalled is that time and time again, these politicians have failed to put in place basic reforms, just basic reforms, basic reforms that fight corruption, that, you know, increase transparency, that would allow the international community to help Lebanon, to give it money. The reasons it, it isn't being solved are actually quite simple. Discussions with the International Monetary Fund on a bailout have made no progress. The political elite, the central bank, and the banking sector are still arguing over who is responsible for bankrupting the state. Lebanon has seen bailouts before. Each time, little changes in the country's leadership, where traditional leaders of the numerous religious sects keep a tight grip on the economy. So who is for and who's against an IMF bailout in Lebanon? On paper, the government supports an IMF bailout, but it's it's an unbudging political class. You have a ruling class that really consists of six or seven men. Most of them are former warlords from the Civil War. Some of them are this sort of business class that rose up after the Civil War. And these men have divided the state for 30 years, and corruption was a way of life. It's how anything worked. The interests are so vested that in a way, doing these reforms goes against their interests. And, and what's really funny is that, you know, around the world, whenever the IMF comes to town, it's not popular with the masses. Yeah, right. You know, the IMF isn't... Yeah, the IMF is not synonymous with sort of social justice or social safety nets or, or you know, the average worker. Their programs are usually very austerity heavy and, and you know, cutting pay and, and pensions and, and all of that. But... What's incredible about Lebanon is that the political class are so corrupt and, and just so, you know, devoid of any reformist tendencies that the IMF is seen in Lebanon as the last savior. It really is by the average person, which I don't know if that's ever happened, that it is the government and the banks and the central bank and parliamentarians who are basically uh, hampering negotiations while it's the people who are calling for them because the people know that if Lebanon gets an IMF program, it means that there will have to be reforms put in place. And it's reforms that would make the life of the average person better. Where does all of this leave the Lebanese people? What happens to them if there is no solution from the IMF or from the state? It's a question that causes a lot of despair to a lot of people in the country because things feel so bleak. You have talk of, you know, impending hunger, just 
all this instability, this increase in crime. You have a massive wave of emigration that's in its beginning stages. There are just thousands of people leaving Lebanon, the educated, you know, doctors, nurses, even even journalists are, are talking about leaving Lebanon. I mean, it's it's a really it's a really difficult question to answer. Have you thought about leaving or do you know anyone who is planning to leave? Yeah, I mean, I am not right now just because I I feel tied to Lebanon and my work. But I think an anecdote can answer whether I know anybody. So I, I, I wrote a story recently about emigration and I reached out to friends on this group chat that I have from university. These are university friends. And I asked them, hey, guys, uh, do you know anyone who's leaving Lebanon that you could put me in touch with? And just all of them were like me, 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 me. And it, yeah, and it turns out that most of the people I, I knew at university are, are leaving the country. It's so intense, it's so hopeless. And and the thing that really hits people and hurts people is the fact that, you know, just nine months ago, the country rose up into this uprising. It was just love, unity, change. And it, it, it's sort of like, you know, during the uprising, it really felt like it was a national party, right? But it what most people didn't know is it was sort of a going away party. People were only getting to know the country then. You know, people who have lived abroad their whole lives sort of turned their eyes back on Lebanon. Uh, but uh, yeah, it turns out it was a going away party and, and everyone was saying goodbye. And, and that is the, the sad situation we're in today. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Dina Kispe, Abigail Oni-Wohacha, Priyanka Tilbe, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>